I wanted to introduce myself a little bit further and partly <coughs> as a way of introducing my topic. Um, as I said, my name is Kevin Griffin, and um, I have been uh, actually first practiced with Jack Cornfield over 25 years ago, so he's been a great guide and inspiration for me for a long time. I also uh, got sober uh, a little over 20 years ago, and so the 12 steps and Buddhism have been uh, kind of the two pillars of my spiritual path, my spiritual life. I'm not sure pillars can be on a path, but in any case, <laughs> not great with those kind of metaphors. Um, and maybe they're the two tracks about that. The two, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. So um, when I first started to teach Dharma uh, about 10 years ago, I, I found that um, these two, as I started to teach the Dharma, that my 12-step my experience and background kept seeping into the things I would say and um, found uh, that there were uh, fellow travelers in the Buddhist rooms uh, who would come up and say, oh, say more about that, about how the Buddhism and the 12 steps fit together. So eventually I decided to say a whole lot more about that and wrote a book called One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the 12 Steps. And there aren't any in the bookstore tonight, so that shows you how popular it is. Um, So the topic I'd like to talk about tonight actually is something that I explore a lot in my teaching just around the 12 steps, but I think it's uh, relevant for all of us whether we are interested in that particular approach to our inner work or, uh, or not. And that is uh, what I'll call Dharma God. It's two words that we don't often hear together too often. In fact, some people would consider to be a, the, a essentially in conflict. I think uh, a lot of people come to Buddhist centers to get away from God. Um, Certainly, Buddhism is considered by many to be a non-theistic religion. Uh, And uh, and I can appreciate that uh, myself. I've been actually very inspired by uh, Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith. I don't know how many people have read that, or he's, he seems to be pretty much everywhere these days, including Newsweek and uh, BeliefNet and everywhere I, I'm, everywhere I am, I run into Sam. Um, and, and he makes some really, to me, very insightful arguments against, um, essentially against blind faith and the, the harm that that brings and how much uh, violence is done in the name of, of religion and, and God. And uh, while I agree with a tremendous amount that he, of the things that he says, uh, his stance as an atheist is where I, where I um, separate myself. Uh, because I feel it's a mistake to give up the word God to those who would uh, limit its meaning and, and make it uh, be about uh, their own personal uses of the term as people will do. Um, so the, the, there's a, there was a great Thai master in the 20th century named Buddha Dasabhikkhu who uh, 
if you've been around here much, you've heard of from uh, Jack and as well as from others. And Buddha Dasa was very interested in the connection between different faiths, different religions, and um, looked at, particularly at the uh, connection between Christian teachings and biblical teachings and Buddhism. Again, a place where uh, we don't often see the correlations. So I'm, I'm going to draw on his teaching uh, really for a lot of what I'm going to say tonight. So I'll start by, um, in fact, this term Dharma God, which in Buddha Dasa would say Dhamma God, but that's the Pali, and so I'm using the more uh, common Sanskrit Dharma. But this term comes from him. Um, He says, as long as people insist that God is a person in the conventional sense of people language, we can say that they will not know the real God. The intellectuals will increasingly deny this ordinary kind of God, and it will not be very long before people educated in the modern way will have eliminated God from their hearts altogether. And this this certainly resonates for me. I think uh, that the way I was taught about God as a as a Catholic growing up in the fifties um, was a was definitely a people language God, and um, it uh, was something I rejected, you know, in my teens, as many people do who are as Buddha Dasa says educated in the modern way. The Buddha Dasa says, asks why we talk about God in this way, why we've lost the Dharma God. And he says, people, God in people language is simply a conventional word which is used when speaking to children. It is used also by adults who, being intellectually immature, feel and think like children. They will use the word God in that way until their awareness and wisdom mature enough for them to understand finally the meaning of God according to Dharma language. Um, This is uh, really the crux of the problem in many ways, and and as well as the solution, I would say, to resolving um, the meaning of God, is to see that uh, the way this idea is presented um, is just something for, for children, but that many people never really grow up spiritually and are left with the idea that God, you know, favors certain peoples, certain nations, you know, are more blessed than others. Um, You know, even uh, where it really gets so absurd, you know, is when the people are praying for their sports team, you know. uh, Well, athletes, you know, oh, everybody back in my hometown in Texas are praying for my team. I have a bias against Texas. You know, take that. <laughs> Personally, if you're from Texas, it's, you know, it's really one of my failings. But, um, you know, uh, I, I just always, I hear that, and it's, I'm just always like, okay, now why would God pick your team over the other team, you know? And how can, how can that be? You didn't, the other team didn't pray enough, or they didn't say the right words, or... 
you know, you guys are more, I don't know what, you gave more on Sunday? It just, uh, very problematic for me. Um, you know, I, th- I think God is with all the athletes, so I, you know, they should all be, feel safe about that. So, let me talk a little bit about how Buddha Dasa defines God and see if this makes any sense to you. Um, and and uh, let me preface this by saying that my interest in this idea, of course, comes out of the fact that I work the 12 steps. And in the steps it says I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And, you know, a lot of people come to the, that step and go, I'm out of here, you know, or I didn't join up to become a, you know, Christian, which is what many, how many people interpret that language, which is understandable. It is, it is somewhat um, Christian-sounding language because the culture that the people who wrote that from, that's, that's the language that they knew. But, uh, but I think that there's a lot of wisdom in, the, in those the steps that uh, just needs to be um, penetrated. But, but my interest then, though, is practical because... I need to stay sober, and that's how I've stayed sober is working a program. And, and um, so I've had to kind of understand this idea of God, and, and then, of course, now I teach around that and try to help others to understand it in a way that's useful, not in a way that is about adopting a new belief system or taking on more magical thinking, but really for, for practical reasons and... and um, and so I'm really only interested in God as a practical concept. So Buddha Dasa says that there are four aspects to God. He says that God, um, and one of the first aspects he describes is nature. Um, and that pretty much is everything, isn't it? Uh, you know, I was reading about how you know, corn is turned into weird things, you know, the book The Omnivore's Dilemma, you know, it's, it's pretty scary because Michael Pollan basically says that if you are what you eat, we are corn. Uh, which, I mean, I guess is, isn't that much worse than anything else to be. It could be wheat, it could be corn, I mean, but, um, but you know, we, humans make things, right? I'm going to make a point here, it's might be a long way coming around, but we'll get there. <laughs> Humans make things, and we call them artificial, but it's really uh, how I sense it, or maybe, I guess my, my belief <laughs> is that everything is still somehow, it, it, we can't make anything from nothing. You know, we can't create energy, and uh, we can't we create matter, as far as I know. I'm not a scientist, but... Uh, those are two understandings I have. So things that are artificial are also made somehow from nature. We make a lot of unnatural things from corn, um, and then we eat them. In any case, um, so just sort of seeing that sort of everything that is, and, and everything that is includes everything physical, but it's also mental too, our consciousness, uh, and also something like nirvana. Uh, wherever or whatever that might be. So nature, 
of all that is. And then the second aspect of God that Buddha Dasa identifies is the laws of nature. Sometimes this is the, the way people translate the word dharma. So this, this is sort of a central aspect of this. And, and I would say this, that the laws of nature kind of are what is very often how we identify God. Um, when I was growing up as a Catholic, um, and I, you know, I try. I was going to say I don't have anything against Catholicism, but I'll say, let me say I, I try not to have anything against Catholicism because <laughs> it's you know it's it's just um, people trying to find God. Um, but growing up, they told me that God is everywhere and God knows everything, which confused the hell out of me. I was like, okay. Now when I see like those Buddhist, you know, tankas, like the Tibetan things, like thousand heads, I go, oh, maybe that's what they meant, like all these heads and arms and stuff. But really that wouldn't be enough, right? So, but I did sort of imagine as a kid somehow that, that God had all these tentacles. I guess I sort of thought about God as some kind of a um, sort of uh, mutated uh, um, octopus, you know, infinite to puss. Uh, and, uh, okay, so, uh, but it turns out that that definition, God is everywhere and God knows everything, is actually a definition of the law of karma. It's what karma is, right? You can't hide out from karma. You can't go in the closet and do what you do in the closet. Whatever I was going to say something, but I just there were so many things that came to mind that I just thought, leave it to your imagination. You know, everybody has their own closet activities. Don't want to limit that. You can't go in there and hide that from anyone. Hide that from karma. You can hide it from everybody else. You can even hide it from yourself and from your own consciousness. It's called denial. But karma, the law of karma, will know. It will know that's there because it's everywhere and it knows everything. And so there will be... And the law of karma is very simple. Just to define it, uh, the law of karma says that there is such a thing as cause and effect, that every time there is some cause, that there is a result from that. Some effect will come of it. So this is a critical aspect of what we call God, and it's and we just we see this actually in every every religion. Um, Buddha Dasa talks about how um, how people call certain religions theistic and some religions religions non-theistic. And he um, doesn't think that's an accurate depiction of, of religions. He says, every religion has something that can be called God. But some religions talk about their God only in terms of Dharma language. Thus it appears that those religions have no God, so they are classified as non-theistic religions. Buddhism and Jainism are religions of this type. Another group of religions mostly uses easily understandable conventional language when talking about God, and so they are classified as theistic religions. Christianity, Hinduism, and Islam are examples of this type. 
Religions of this latter group have very profound things to say about God in terms of Dharma language, but they are hidden under the outer shell and form of those religions. The classification of religions into two groups, non-theistic and theistic, is a superficial classification that does not touch the real essence or meaning of religion. So we see this we see this law of karma. Obviously it's in, in every religion. It's taught in every religion. It's really the heart of most religions, I'd say. So this is an aspect of God. Um, and what, in the 12 steps we talk about sometimes, rather than saying God, we say higher power, which is uh, giving um, you know, a particular uh, quality to God, talking about the power of God. And um, we can see this in th- things like the truth of impermanence. You know, there, there is this power that impermanence has to just ch- it, that everything is constantly changing. And this is another one of the laws of nature. Um, the truth of suffering. Uh, you know, this is the first thing that the Buddha taught about was was to see the truth of suffering and and how uh, pervasive that is. So seeing all this gives us some idea, seeing the laws of nature gives us some idea of the scope and the the actual, the essence of, of God. And it has nothing to do with a being. It has nothing to do with the personality that likes things or dislikes things or can be cruel to things. It's completely impersonal. The law of karma doesn't care about you personally. It just, it doesn't care. You know, that's not, that, that doesn't even work for something that doesn't have, um, you know, a personality. And that, that doesn't mean, I will talk about care more, it doesn't mean that there can't be uh, good things that come out of the law of karma. Of course, there are. But Buddhadasa goes on to say the third aspect of the Dharma God is the human's duty to God. And this is, um, I'm not, I'm not don't, I don't love the word duty that he uses, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's fairly accurate. In the 12 steps, we say we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And turning our will and our lives over is, is our duty, we could say. So in, in the Buddhist world, when we, say we, when we say we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, we could say that what we are doing is turning our will and our lives over. So what does that mean, to turn your will and your life over to something? Again, it has this kind of uh, uh, Christian or Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic kind of tone to it. But again, to talk in Buddhist terms, when we say will in Buddhism, we usually use the word intention. And when we say turn our lives over, we're talking about action. So these are two of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, right? Which is the Buddha's um, guide to freedom. So when we turn our intention over, what we're doing is instead of following our own self-centered or impulsive 
or selfish or obsessive ego-driven impulse. I said impulse twice. That's okay. Uh, instead of following that, we try to find what would be a more wholesome way of acting, which the Buddha also recommends to us. One of those ways of acting is called the five precepts, also known as right action. So to turn our lives over means that we live differently. So the intention is just the motivation behind the action, and then the turning our lives over is actually living or fulfilling that intention. It's not enough to do one or the other without the other is, doesn't fulfill this. this is, the Buddha famously said that karma is intention, meaning that it's karma, that intention is what informs karma and brings about the nature of the results of karma. So that two actions, two people performing the same action with different motivation will have different karmic results. So this is one of the ways that we do our duty to God. I, you know, I sometimes I feel like I'm uh, being kind of obnoxious by saying the word God over and over in the Buddhist center. Um, God, God, come on! Uh, but it, part of what part of my agenda is to reclaim this word, to make it acceptable to us, to have a, a new meaning, so that we stop the, that. We don't have the old images of God. Certainly, that's part of my work, is to abandon the old image of God, to to remember that God is an it, not a he or a she. In the 12 steps, it calls God him, which is completely unacceptable to me and to many other people. Um, But on the other hand, turning him into a her doesn't solve the basic problem. Just creates another problem. It creates a problem with your mother instead of with your father. Now, you might have a problem with cousin it, I guess, if you... But uh, just let you deal with that. So, there, but there's a lot more. You know, the, our Buddhist practice, the Eightfold Path, is a, can essentially be characterized in, in this model as our duty to God, right? our duty to the laws of nature. If we want our life to be the way we would like it to be, really, in our hearts, we need to follow a wise path. And... The Buddha gave us this. So he said that we need to have right view. We need to see things as they really are. See the Four Noble Truths. See the truth of things. Not live deluded in our fantasies of how we would like things to be. Um, we need to then with that, take that view and have that inform our intention. We need to be clear that we, we want to act on these skillful, this skillful view and then the middle of the Eightfold Path gives us three different forms in which he talks about really practical issues, right action, which he talked about, the precepts, not to kill, not to steal, not to harm others with our sexuality, not to harm with our language, 
with our speech and not to take intoxicants, which is very convenient for people in 12-step programs because they're at least following one precept. Um, and then he also says, you know, right livelihood. And this is a huge challenge, right? And the, one of the things that I love about the Buddhist teachings is it's not about something otherworldly. I mean, he gets right down to it. Here it is. It's not just a side issue. One of the things you need to do, have a job that doesn't harm. Wow. And that's, that's as much of a challenge as trying to sit down and follow your breath. You know, at least when you sit down and follow your breath, you don't have a boss who's hanging over your shoulder other than your, you know, superego yelling in your ear how bad a meditator you are. Uh, um, right speech. You know, this... Tremendous challenge. I mean, this is a really a lifetime's work, right? Speech, and there's and for each of these, there are specific guidelines, uh, very rich uh, guidelines. Um, and then we move into the meditative aspects of the of the path: right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Um, each of these uh, moves us closer in a sense, to God, developing these qualities. Other wa- I want to talk about some other ways. So, the, uh, so really what I'm talking about right now, is this, when we talk about the du- our duty in relation to God, another way to put it that I find more palatable is to say to live in harmony with the Dharma. To live in harmony with the Dharma. Um, you know, as a practicing alcoholic... You know, I was constantly in conflict with the Dharma, you know. Um, Addiction itself is a classic case of resisting impermanence. I want to feel the same way all the time. And this is, but you don't have to be an addict to act like that. This is a very natural human thing to do. People do it with meditation. Oh, I had a really good meditation. Now, what did I do? How did I get there? Let me try and see if I can do that again. And we try to recreate experiences. Of course, you can't recreate an experience. Um, All you can do is do something similar, but it's always going to be different. So you can't can't hold on to anything in that way. Uh, But there... And, and, you know, again, talking just in relation to the precepts, the ways that uh, we try to kind of get around them a little bit. Well, this, I'm just cheating a little bit, you know, and the ways we kind of... No, I mean, karma won't allow for that, you know. It's not, you know, you're going to reap what you sow. Somebody, a wise person said that, I think. So I want to talk a little bit about the three characteristics, which are another central aspect of the Buddhist teachings um, and how living in harmony with the three characteristics allows us to um, then reap the fruits of the of living in harmony with God or the, the fruits of our duty to God. So when we live in harmony with impermanence Aging is understood. Death is understood. It's not confusing. You know, I, I, heard, I remember hearing a woman on the radio after her son had been killed in Iraq saying, I never thought this could happen. I never imagined 
that that would happen. My father went to the Second World War and he came home. My husband went to Vietnam and he came home. I never thought my son would get killed in Iraq. And I just thought, how could you not have thought that? I mean, that's the first thing I would think. And I would be thinking that every day, every minute of every day. My daughter is eight. She goes to school. I think she's going to die on the way home from school every day. That's a, you know, I'm a little you know, pessimistic, but... <laughs> I mean, that's the Buddhist teaching, isn't it? That every day we need to contemplate our own death. And then when you do that, when you live in harmony with that, it's not confusing. It doesn't mean it's pleasant or you're going to be happy about it. But it is even possible, as we see, to be in balance with that. And instead of, being, of seeing death as this fearsome horror or tragedy, to just greet it as another moment in time. This is, this is the understanding of impermanence. If we understand impermanence, we understand that, ple- that if there is pleasure, there will be pain. If there is pla- praise, there will be blame. If there is gain, there will be loss. All of these uh, are, dualities are just implicit in this understanding so that as life goes through its inevitable changes, we aren't in this constant struggle around it. You know, oh, well, there it is. You know, we see the truth of impermanence in everything. It's so easy to see. It's so obvious. And if we're living in harmony with that, there's a balance. There's a sense of just lack of huge disturbance. Yeah. Um, so impermanence, the other, another aspect of the three characteristics is the truth of suffering. When we see pain and loss, we don't see it as some aberration. It's not a shock. It's, oh, this is an aspect of life. We understand that. When, when we are, you know, have some physical pain. You know, last year I had some terrific back pain. Uh, my back, you know, we say we, my back went out. I'm not sure where it went out to. <laughs> and I wish it would come home. But, it, you know, and people would say, why do you think that happened? And my response was because I have a body. And that's the bottom line of why you have pain. I mean, you can t- try to get a diagnosis and figure everything out and the, thing you, the wrong thing you ate and the way you bent over wrong and all that, but you know, the bottom line is you, you have pain because you have a body. And if you understand that, it doesn't have to be so excruciating. That and Vicodin, so... <laughs> And the third characteristic, the characteristic that, that, that asks us to really look and see if there is a self. Sometimes it's called no self, not self, don't know if there's a self. In any case, um, you know, what it's saying, one way of, of looking at it is just to see that focusing on me doesn't bring happiness. In fact, I just heard a wonderful quote, Ajahn Amaro quoting Ajahn Sumedho, who says, Whenever I think about myself, I feel depressed. That kind of sums it up, you know. And this is Ajahn Sumedho, who's been practicing for, you know, a monk for 35 years. And if, you know, if that's how it hits him, you know, the rest of us don't have a chance. You know? But just seeing, and this is, of course, a 12-step belief or teaching as well, that uh, self-obsession is, is our problem. Um, you know, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, 
Daniel Goleman talks about depression and he talks about various different solutions to depression and then almost offhandedly at the end he says, well, of course, doing service is an instant cure for depression, but very few people do it. Really hit me, whoo. You know, because it just was kind of a double, double slap in the face. You know, just seeing how, how we, you know, the way I'm going to stop being depressed is I'm going to go and I'm talk, going to talk to somebody for an hour about it, just about me and about how depressed I am, and then I'll feel better. <laughs> well, according to Ajahn Sumedho, that will not work. So, this duty or this way of harmonizing with. God with the laws of nature is an is an uh, an essential aspect of like so I shouldn't say harmonizing with God because I'm saying that our duty to the it's more like the uh, harmonizing with the laws of nature is another aspect of God let me put it that way and then the fourth aspect which really kind of brings this all together is the fruits of living in harmony with God or not um the, the positive fruits of li- the fruits of living in harmony, the ultimate fruit that the Buddha taught was ultimate freedom, was enlightenment. Um, but we don't have to be there to see the benefits of living skillfully. Uh, certainly this path in itself offers us tremendous uh, gifts. Um, you know, just stress reduction, you know, that comes from meditation. The opening of the heart. This is one of the fruits of living in harmony with the Dharma. A deeper intuitive wisdom. Really being able to see more clearly. Um, a feeling of connection. Just feeling connected. You know, you can have this in a moment of just trying to be in harmony. Just try, try, trying to be mindful, which is one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, part of our duty, Right? brings about the fruit of it is this sense of connection, of presence. And all the ways that I described of, of living in harmony with the impermanence and suffering in no self. Um, so this, this model, nature, the law of nature our duty to the law of nature, the fruits of living in harmony with the law of nature. This is a way to understand God. Hmm. Complicated. Hard to remember all those, probably, right away. But, um, and, and I think it's important as well to, because obviously this is, uh, you know, these are just ideas, these are just words. You know, the Tao Te Ching says that the real truth cannot be spoken. So uh, this is not the real truth. This is a, uh, an attempt to describe the truth. And the, uh, So a couple more pieces of this that I think are important. is to see that you know one of the most profound experiences of god is the is in silence this is you know some people say that you know in the 12 step programs one of the lines is 
prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening to God. Not sure I buy that because mostly what I hear when I'm meditating isn't, isn't God. It's the voices in my head. But this idea of uh, when we come into the silence, when we come into that silence, then we're touching something powerful, indescribable, which is, uh, I think it's easier to call that God, you know, it's, it, because it's um, so beyond the beyond. It's mysterious. And, um, and that sense of fullness that comes from that, um, there, that's what we tend to call spiritual, right? that, that experience. So there's two ways uh, now to, uh, that I think we can talk about how we interact with God or about our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. And those are doing and being. So when we are doing and our relationship with God as a doer and us as a doer, we work working around the law of karma. This is active. Um, although, the, well, so, and being, uh, being is more just the stillness, the silence, the emptiness. So the allowing, that direct touching. Um, and each of these is important. There, if we simply sit, we will have you know, moments of profound uh, you know, power and and um, you know many many as- qualities, joy and heartfelt um, ca- caring. But I think it's very one of the things that happens to us as we sit and our hearts open is that we're inspired to act, and so that really. Um, requires us to then look at how, how to act in the world and to follow the, the path, the Eightfold Path. The, and at the same time, we can see that, well, we, ha- we have a role in our relationship to God, that is, responsibilities. God also has this role, right? And, and, and it's, it's, this, it's really a relationship. Now, because we we are fulfilling this duty to in our in this relationship at the same time that to even t- describe this as a relationship is to set up an idea of a duality which of course is not accurate because we can't say that the law of karma or the truth of impermanence is outside of us then again we can't say that we control those either or that they belong to us. And this is another place where the idea of I really breaks down. I am impermanence, but I don't. I can't do. Any, I can't do anything to impermanence. I am karma. I can interact with it, but I can't make it be different. Um, you know, even as I say these words, uh, you know, I sort of see this, 
maybe the, your thought bubbles or my thought bubbles kind of going, whoa, because there's the, the doors that this kind of sort of opens up, there's a lot of risks inherent in talking about this, which is one of the things ways it's fun to talk about. Um, but we start to get into this place where it's like just everything is so interwoven that you really can't take it apart. So I'll close with a poem because poetry helps us to escape those logical conundrums that we get ourselves into. This is from Kabir. Are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas, not in Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues, nor in cathedrals, not in masses, nor kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, what is God? He is the breath inside the breath. The breath inside the breath. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Where else? Where else to look? I, I love that idea of how we... I actually wrote a song where I used some of these lines that... All the way, places that you can kind of search for your spirituality, you know, having to go to India or you know, go, go trekking in Nepal or you know, go be a monk in Burma or go to Marin County, you know. Um, as though you were go- God was hanging out over there or enlightenment was, it's on the other side of the hill. You got to go up there. Sorry, not here. Um, so when we understand that, we see that you know the practice is here. The practice is now. God is here. God is now. Nowhere to go. Nothing to be. As Ayakema says. So I hope these. Words have been of some benefit. I offer them to you for your consideration. And because I wasn't able to talk long enough, I'll take any questions or thoughts anyone might have to offer. Yes? You said something about intention informing karma. Yes. What happens... To the karma balance sheet when you do something mindlessly, like slapping at a, an annoying insect. Yeah. <laughs> the, the question is, uh, if intention informs karma, what happens if you act without intention, I guess is what you're saying. You do something mindlessly. Well, uh, I, uh, first of all, to t- talk about 
how karma works is a little risky. As the Buddha said, that if you try to figure it out, you'll go crazy. But I figure I'm pretty crazy already, so I'll take the risk of saying something. Um, it's There are things that are done by accident. And the, uh, my understanding of the teachings, they say that if you do something by accident, there's no karma. But if you do something, if you... If you swat a fly, that's not an accident. That's different from driving a car and there's an ant under and you don't see it, you don't know it's there. But this is intentional. And you just don't know, you just don't notice your intention. Most of the time we don't notice our intention, which is one of our problems, one of our big problems. And one that's why right intention is right up there as something to, to work at. And, you know, exploring intention and its complexities is a really vital aspect of our path. Um, to see that all, most intentions, all the ones I've ever noticed, are, are mixed. <laughs> uh, that pure intention probably only comes when the mind is completely pure, whenever that is. Um, but, yeah, if there's an action that has... Like as you described, I'd say that there's intention behind it. It's just that you don't notice it, because because in, having intention doesn't mean there has to be mindfulness involved. You can have intention without being mindful. You can't escape karma. You can't escape karma. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right, sure. Whatever. Right meditation. So what's wrong then? Right, and that's it's not the it's not a good translation. It's just one that kind of came down to us and. Well, some people do. Some people do. If you see the, um, you know, the prayer wheel up at the gate to the retreat center, if you see there, it says wise intention, which isn't a. Uh, I don't think is a very accurate translation either. My understanding the word, the Pali word that's translated as right or wise is sama and the most interesting thing I've heard said about that, S-A-M-M-A is that it's related to the word summit so I like to think of instead of it being right or wrong as gradations and you can get to this you know there's a peak, there's a highest form So, so highest intention, you know, is, is our goal, but our intention is usually going to be somewhere else, so we kind of, we can at least see that we're making progress rather than I'm either right or I'm wrong. So it's much more on a continuum. Yeah. Another yeah. translation yeah. is skillful. Skillful, yeah. That's really, yeah. Uh, skillful is a good good translation, too. Is it? What? He said that's hard if you're clumsy. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's not that kind of skill. Hmm. Well, let's do some metta practice. We just have a few minutes, and there's lots of suffering in the world that we can send love to.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.